Well, before we begin the, I begin the sermon this morning, I want to ask you to take your worship bulletin and pull out the little white insert that says, Being Oakmont Beyond the Building. Being Oakmont Beyond the Building. If you were not here last Sunday morning, we introduced something we're going to do on Sunday, October the 28th. We're going to be Oakmont Beyond the Building. And so this white insert represents 21 different responses on our whiteboard on the back and everybody has permission now to turn around for a quick second and look at the whiteboard on the back just turn around and see the whiteboard behind you and see all of the little slips of paper that are on it we took everything that you wrote down last Sunday and I even kind of tried to prime the pump a little bit by offering 10 possibilities for ways that we can worship here next or rather on Sunday October 28th and then go out into our community and be the church beyond the building. So uh, later on in the service, I hope you'll look through and see some of the ways that people have decided to be Oakmont beyond the uh, building, where we were able to contact people and to ask permission to put their contact information in here, we did. So if your name is in here and you don't have a contact information, you'd like for other people to have that such that they could call you or email you and say, hey, we'd like to join you in your idea that's the way that we're going to be able to share this information together. So at the end of the service today, if God has impressed upon your heart a way to be Oakmont beyond the building, we want you to move to that whiteboard on the back at the end of the service and take a little post-it note and write down your, your idea, your name, contact information if you want to include it, and put it on the whiteboard this morning. That'll be at our response time. Okay, everybody put up the white sheet now. Put up the white sheet and take your Bibles, if you would, and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We're going to continue to look uh, at some of the biblical one another commands. So we've been looking at what it means to love one another and be compassionate and forgiving to one another and bearing one another's burdens as a few examples. And this morning, we're going to talk a little bit about what it means to wait, to wait for one another in the context of the Lord's Supper. And before I read the scripture, I really need to set it up for you because it won't make a lot of sense to you uh, unless I tell you what, what's going on here at the Church of Corinth and why Paul is writing what he writes in chapter 11. Now, keep in mind, in this time, people do not go to buildings like we're in to worship. They worship in homes. And also keep in mind that the Lord's Supper celebration, and by the way, 1 Corinthians 11 probably gives us the earliest um, background material on the celebration of the Lord's Supper. What Jesus did in that last supper, which was a Passover meal that he celebrated with his disciples. This is probably the, the earliest that we have here in 1 Corinthians 11. So keep in mind that number one, they don't meet in churches, they meet in homes. And number two, they don't always celebrate the Lord's Supper like we do in the context of a worship service. They celebrated the Lord's Supper in the context of what we call a church fellowship meal. They called it a love feast or an agape meal. And they would meet in people's homes. So what happened is that the rich folks of the day had the largest homes, right? So they hosted these meals. And because they were 
wealthy. They could get off work a little bit earlier than some of the other uh, poor members of the congregation. So they would get off work earlier. They would bring a covered dish meal with them, and it was very good food. And they would go into the dining room and start eating before others arrived. They also brought some wine with them. And by the time some of the poor members of the congregation were able to get off of work and arrive, some of these richer folks were in a drunken stupor. And all of the food was gone because the poor folks couldn't afford to bring some of the better food. So what's happening is that people are coming. Not everybody's able to eat. Some folks are in a drunken stupor. And then they move after the fellowship meal to celebrate the Lord's Supper and to take the bread and the cup and act that is designed to remember the atoning death of Jesus on the cross and to accentuate the togetherness and the oneness and the unity of the people. So what was happening is that it was becoming divisive, not bringing people together, but dividing people. Okay? Keep all of that in mind as we read the Scripture now. Turn with me, 1 Corinthians 11, beginning with verse 17. And by the way, keep in mind also, the church at Corinth had multiple problems. This was just one of many problems that Paul is having to address in 1 Corinthians in the following directives, I have no praise for you. Boy, when the pastor gets up on Sunday morning and says, I don't have any praise for you, you know there's trouble, and Paul has no praise for this congregation. For your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat, for as you eat, each of you go ahead without waiting for anybody else. One remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat? And drink in, or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not. And then this is the earliest word that we have about how Jesus instituted what we call the Lord's Supper. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, The cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. Then in verse 33. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait, wait for one another or for each other. If anyone is hungry, he should eat at home 
so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. Sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord, and together let us say, thanks be to God. Paul told the church at Corinth to wait for each other. You know, waiting for something or someone is hard, isn't it? I don't like to wait, do you? I was thinking this past week that when I was in the first grade, I hated waiting for the school bus to arrive. Any of you stand out on the side of the road like I did? Raise your hand if you rode a school bus through the years. I either rode a school bus to school or I drove one. This was back in the day when they actually turned 16, 17, and 18 year olds loose to drive school buses. So I either rode a school bus or drove a school bus my entire life. And I was at the beginning of the route. The, the, the next door neighbor got picked up before I did. And even though my school was only four or five miles away, it took an hour and 15 minutes to get there. And I hated waiting on the side of the road for that bus and then sitting on an hour and 15 minutes in the morning and an hour and 15 minutes in the afternoon. Waiting, waiting. We wait all the time, don't we? We wait in traffic. You like waiting in traffic? Just sitting at a stoplight, three people in front of you, the light turns green, and they sit. And as it turns out, you miss the light, right? Don't you just hate that? Waiting, waiting in traffic. We wait in the grocery store line to check out. You always get behind the person who the cashier has to run to the back to check on the price, right? Don't you hate waiting in the grocery store line? You, you wait in line to get admitted into the ball game on Saturday afternoon. You wait for the procedure or the surgery to be completed for the loved one. You wait to be called back for the appointment. We, we wait for the repairman or woman to finally show up. They were going to be there at 9.30 and they got there at 10.30. We wait. We wait finally to get to be 16 years of age so we can drive a car and get our license, right? We wait to get through the degree requirements to graduate. We wait for the wedding day to arrive. We wait nine months for the baby to be born. I bet you've thought of some I've even missed here about things that you wait on all the time. You ever heard the old saying, hurry up and wait? Hurry up and wait. A great deal of our lives is just spent waiting. And here Paul tells the Corinthian church to wait. Wait for each other. Why does he tell them that? Well, he tells them because their failure to wait for one another highlights the socioeconomic differences in that church between rich and poor, the upper class and the lower class, which did not create a sense of oneness and togetherness and unity, but it created division. A common meal, a fellowship meal, that we would call it, meant to create a sense of unity, had created a divisive gathering of people. By taking the bread and the cup in an unworthy manner, by getting into a drunken stupor, by eating up all of the food before everyone had arrived, they were forgetting that Jesus died for all people, that we're all one in him. 
Whether we're rich or poor, young and old, red or yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight, goes the song, because Jesus loves the little children of the world, and he loved all of the adults, rich or poor, wealthy or poor, or not so wealthy there, upper class or lower class in the church of Corinth, and he still loves his people across the world today. You know, some, sometimes we forget that God doesn't have favorites. We, 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 think, we, we think he has favorites. Sometimes we forget that God is not an American. And he's not European either. He's not South American. He's not Middle Eastern. He's not Asian. Sometimes we forget that he doesn't have a particular country or continent that he likes best. Sometimes we forget that God doesn't have any favorites when it comes to Christian denominations. I know we Baptists think we're number one. And there's the old joke about when Baptists get to heaven, they'll be in total shock that there are others who are actually there uh, in God's presence. But God doesn't have any favorites when it comes to denominations. He doesn't have a particular preference of a socioeconomic status. He doesn't like one age over another. He doesn't have a preference with race or ethnicity or gender. God doesn't have any preferences when it comes to educational attainment. He doesn't think that somebody who has a master's or a doctorate is better than someone who never graduated from high school. God doesn't have a preference about where we live in this country. We Southerners think he kind of likes the South best, right? That he loves Northerners and Mid Midwesterners and folks who grew up on the West Coast. And God doesn't have a favorite profession. What you do or did for a living, God doesn't think that's necessarily the best. He just loves everybody who works and tries to make a living in a fair and decent way and tries to make a difference in people's lives. And I need to remind you this morning that God is not a Democrat, and he's not a Republican, and he's not an Independent. Because it was Jesus who said, my kingdom is not of this world. And we forget that sometimes too. You see, rather than stressing differences and distances, God embraces similarities and closeness and intimacy. Rather than celebrating divisions and factions and dissensions, God honors unity and oneness and togetherness. So the Lord's Supper, the bread and the cup, serves to remind us that we need to give God thanks for the unity that we find through him really through his son Jesus, through Jesus' atoning death on that cross for our sins, and that there should be no divisions in Christ. That's why Paul said to wait. That's why Paul said to wait until everybody arrives to eat the agape meal, the love feast, the fellowship, supper, and wait until everybody arrives for the Lord's Supper. It's a beautiful symbol that God doesn't show favorites and that we're all one in Jesus despite our differences that are always going to exist. But, but you know, I think waiting for one another as a sign of unity also means a little bit more than maybe just waiting at the Lord's table for everyone to be served or waiting for everyone to arrive to eat the agape fellowship meal. 
You know, the word wait does mean to wait for someone or something. But biblically, the word wait can also mean that we wait or we look with expectancy for a particular end result or an outcome because we were patient enough to wait for it. So, for example, we wait for nine months for the baby to be born, right? And the outcome, the end result is often that we have a new life that comes into our world that blesses our lives. It's not unusual for me to hear one spouse speaking about another spouse. And there's some kind of decision that together as a couple they have to make. It's not unusual for me to hear one spouse saying, I'm waiting on her. I'm waiting on him to get to the same place I am on this decision. We want a mutually satisfying decision. It's not unusual to hear that parents are waiting on children or children are waiting on parents to find a new place where unity and oneness can be shared. And then sometimes we have to wait on God. We wait on God to move in a person's life so that they come to a new place of thinking or being or doing about a particular matter. You know, leadership groups in the church like deacons often will have conversations about particular issues or subjects or dreams or hopes or visions for the future of the church. And deacons or staff or other groups may talk about this for weeks or months before you hear about it. Why? Are we trying to hide anything from you? Absolutely not. But as your leaders, they're trying to come to some clarity of thinking before they come to you and completely confuse you to death. But, but I often say to our leaders, deacons and others, hey, when we come to the congregation with something, we need to give them some time to catch up with us. We've been thinking about this idea, this issue for weeks or months. We need, to give, we need to wait on the rest of our congregation to catch up. So you see, sometimes waiting requires that we allow another person to move to another place of being or thinking before we take action. Why? Because it's a symbol, it's a sign of love, respect, and a desire to be in as much unity as we can despite the differences that may exist. I want to put a picture on the screen this morning for you to look at. It is a picture of a fresco. Any of you all ever seen a fresco before? You know what a fresco is? It's a painting of, uh, of, of, on a wall of, of wet plaster. And this is a painting or a fresco of the Last Supper that Jesus shared with his disciples. It is at Holy Trinity Episcopal Church uh, near the little community of Glendale Springs up in the North Carolina mountains. And, and since my early adulthood, in my early 20s, when Ben Long, the artist, completed this in 1980, uh, I've seen it on several occasions. And it's in that little Episcopal church and, and I want you to notice something about the, the picture. Um, do you notice in the center that there is a stool? By, by the way, uh, you're unfortunately, and it's kind of interesting that we're taking this technology offering today, and one of the reasons it looks a little dull is because our projectors 
seriously about to die. So when you give lovingly and generously to our technology offering this morning, you'll be able to see, uh, we hope in a few months, this a little bit better. It's not as clear as our center screen is because we had to project, had to replace that projector some time ago. But do you notice that there's a stool that's missing? I mean, I mean a stool that's vacant. See it, see it in the center of that stool? And the stool is the place where, okay, oh, yeah, you're drawing a circle around it there. There you go, thank you. Um, this is where Judas has been. And Judas has left the Last Supper, and he's left to betray Jesus. But, you know, I think one of the beautiful symbolisms of this fresco is that it reminds us that there is always a vacant spot available for you and me at the Lord's table. That there is a place for you and me that has our name on it. And you know what? God is waiting on you and me to come and fill that open spot and to sit at table together as brothers and sisters in Christ. There's an old hymn that was written 100 years before Ben Long completed this fresco in 1980. It was written in 1880, and you know the hymn very well. And it goes like this. Softly and tenderly, Jesus is calling. Calling for you and for me. See on the portals, he's waiting and watching, watching for you and for me. Come home, come home, you who are weary, come home. Earnestly, tenderly, Jesus is calling, calling, oh sinner, come home. You see, there's a place at the table for you and for me. And we wait for each other even as Jesus is waiting on us.